All right, all set. Okay, um, just to make sure, how did you say your last name? Weber, like uh, the grill. Okay. Okay, cool. And then from there, we'll just, you know, I have a few notes, but we'll just have a quick conversation about all the cool stuff you do. Sounds good. Alright. Alright, we're live. Welcome to the Global Phys Ed Boxcast. Um, I'm really excited to be talking to you. Uh, I saw some of your tweets and I saw some of your videos online, and we'll be talking about your YouTube channel a little bit later. So, Dr. Jordan Weber, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I check out all your tweets as well, and I think that's how most of us keep up with each other nowadays, your most recent tweet. So, it's good to see, you know, obviously you're out of the country and experiencing different things. So, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm, I'm glad to see that you're going to be able to share some of the uh, things to this podcast as well. Yeah, it's really interesting that, that now that you bring that up how we kind of know each other, but this is the first time we've actually talked face-to-face. Well, I mean, it's virtual face-to-face, right? But this is the first time we've actually met and talked. But I do feel like, you know, we I do have sort of an insight in some of the things that you've done because I've been following you on Twitter. Yeah, and I think that's what social media is good for. It's connecting, you know, professionals. And as much as there is against social media, there's probably just as much for social media because it does connect professionals with each other you know, anytime they want. And it's, you know, it's a system that's, you know, you can use Instagram, you can use Twitter, you can use Google, you can use Facebook, you can use so many different outlets to get across your um, program or methods. And you can use Spotify and iTunes, and like you're doing podcasts. So I think it's easier to get in touch with people as well. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a weird thing about social media that it does have this sort of dark side to it, right? And, and especially like recently I've been, I've been seeing, I've seen several articles. I know in several books, they talk about some of the, uh, some of the, uh, pitfalls that you can fall into in social media and it, it, it leading to depression and it leading to all these like addictive, uh, natures of social media and all these things. But at the same time, like you said, I feel as a professional, I've gained so much knowledge and been able to connect with so many awesome and interesting people of social media right and you can unfollow you can follow and you can block whoever you want it's it's up to you there's no rules as far as oh you're not allowed to block anyone you're not allowed to follow you have to follow this person you ha- you know you have to follow your aunt or whatever it is you know but if you're looking for certain information you know then you want to follow the right people and then when they give out information you're more likely to give out better information as opposed to just listening to and following to everybody and, you know, maybe getting caught up, too, in the drama when somebody writes something nasty, you write something nasty back, you know. If you don't want that person commenting that, then block them, and then there's the issue gone. And I think a lot of people can get caught up in the, the social drama of everything. But like you said, use it as a professional experience, and you're going to do a lot better with it. Yeah, I think that's really good advice because it's almost like the there is this, this sort of um, – it's almost programmed to kind of highlight some of the negativity that's out there. And I think you're right. We just have to have a a good relationship with social media and not fall into some of those pitfalls. So 
I know we get, right off the bat we kind of hit a tangent there, but um, I do want to get a little bit of background on you before we go any further. Sure. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So uh, born and raised in uh, Tonawanda, New York, which is uh, north of Buffalo in between uh, Niagara Falls and Canada there. Basically grew up playing hockey, football, soccer, basketball. Three older brothers, so it was easy to get into sports. It was easy to get into competition. Grew up, uh, had awesome elementary PE experience. You know, the ones where you went through tunnels. Um, basically, had really great phys ed teachers in elementary school, middle school. Um, very, very traditional, though. Very sport-minded, uh, but very good teachers. So we really enjoyed PE class. And as much as there was dodgeball and as much as there was probably the inappropriate things, they were really good teachers and they were really good people. So I had a good experience with them, so I have nothing negative to say. And I don't think they really knew any better as far as the dodgeball is concerned because that's all we did in high school. Um, you know, dodgeball was the game. You know, they would put people in the center of the gym and you were to the targets and it was scary and it was freshmen versus seniors. And it was super intimidating. And, you know, and I had that experience. We called it gym because that's what it said on the report card. And, you know, and a lot of people get offended when you say gym, but I don't really tend to get offended when people say inappropriate things like, oh, that's just gym class. You know, I think that's just basically their ignorance as far as they're ignoring the fact that there is physical education and it is standardized and it is, you know, well sought after through our, you know, professional environment. You know, people like you and the people on Twitter and the, the, the leaders in the field, they really try to amplify what physical education is and then a lot of times you hear in the media like oh gym class strikes again you know people are you know getting hurt or people are getting offended or you know they're not doing anything for social inclusion and so now we're writing about you know social justice and physical education and now people are going against that and so you know there's a back and forth it's like what i don't know it's very very up and going right now. I think it's finally at that climax where it's 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 going to shift in one or the other direction. Yeah. And um, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Um, you know, and just trying to finish up the background. Basically, grew up playing sports. Um, played soccer my whole life. Played competitive soccer. Played college soccer. You know, loved loved soccer. Played hockey, roller hockey, just as much. Big roller hockey person. Played football. Love playing tennis, you know, basically any sport or game, climbing, adventure challenge, swimming, hiking, that type of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm all for any type of physical activity, however it gets you physical. Um, grew up, went to SUNY Brockport, knew uh, Justin Hagel actually, went to school with him, who's a big researcher and who's motivating me to be more of a researcher. And then I went to uh, North Carolina after my bachelor's in science, got my master's degree in health, and then got my doctorate degree in educational leadership because I wanted to have a curriculum approach as, as opposed to getting a doctorate in physical education specifically. I knew I could implement my physical education, adaptive physical activity background into my doctorate. So I, I chose to stay at the school where I was at here at Watson School of Education. So. I've got my doctorate this past uh, December. I've been teaching for about 10 years. I've been personal training as well. I've developed a nonprofit organization called Train Us Forward Fitness for people with disabilities who get free or reduced costs personal training and adapted community fitness classes that are taught by individuals with disabilities. And I also run a program called I Can Do It at the university, which is going on about 10 years strong. And I've been coordinating that on Saturday mornings 
actually, you know, for the past 10 years uh, in the fall and spring. And now it's a summer camp. And we also have fall and uh, spring programs that we introduce college mentors with people with disabilities. And we get a good um, win-win situation for everyone in the community. And then I'm also part of, uh, you know, key uh, organizations, you know, in our um, faculty department, you know, for, you know, just in general, as far as healthy, uh, healthy faculty community initiatives. And so just kind of organizing uh community get-togethers with our faculty and stuff like that. So that's a little bit about my background. Wow, there's a lot in there. You, you, you stay busy, don't you? Yeah, I, I try to stay busy. Um, I'm working out in between staying busy is what I do, basically. So I wanted to ask, um, where do you think that love of movement came from? Because, like you said, you played all different kinds of sports. You, you, you've always been active in some way or another. Where do you think that came from? Oh, for sure, just playing outside uh, in the backyard, you know, playing, you know, we played kickball in the backyard. My parents, you know, they didn't know too much about sports, but they knew how to get us moving. And so we go to parks, you know, they, they were, they taught us to be active. They didn't really teach us to be sports specific. So we had no sports specific training growing up, which, which is something that now our generation is going to have parents that are phys ed teachers who can really kind of mitigate a lot of injuries just by teaching them the right things. But like, you know, my parents, they just got us active. They thought soccer was the right thing because it was the cheapest thing and, you know, affordable for four boys. Obviously you can't play football or hockey. The equipment for that would be too expensive. So it was the right thing. We've gotten into soccer. I played roller hockey though. We played pickup uh, football on the streets. We played hide and go seek in the backyards, ghost in the graveyard. I mean, we, we had cliques and gangs of kids that would hang out at night you know, all the way until we were like 18, you know, until we got too old. We're like, all right, we need to probably do something else. But um, we were always active. We had a really active neighborhood. All of our neighbors that I lived next to, we all went outside. We played hockey on the streets. We'd get kicked off the streets. We'd go behind uh, department stores. We'd pick up games. And then all of a sudden, we'd go to the tennis courts. They kicked kicked us off the tennis courts, built a hockey rink just for us. We'd throw 30 sticks in the middle of the rink. We'd have four teams, two goalies, and we'd play for hours and hours and hours. We wouldn't bring water. We didn't know anything like that. But we would do that every single day in the summer. It was either that, soccer or hockey. Um, I wasn't into the football, so, um, you know, I only played, um, you know, actual, you know, contact football without equipment, which was really fun. So I never actually played real football, but I got into more of the soccer when I was growing up. So... You know, when you're when you're talking about these experiences that you had as a kid, I think more and more we hear about those experiences kind of um, not being available for some of the kids that are that are growing up nowadays because of a variety of reasons. What do you think about that? What do you think um, the the future of, of some of, of this upcoming generation is going to look like if they don't have some of those experiences? It's as simple as as having a room with nothing in it. You know, and as doing things in that room, putting a treadmill in there and putting a mat down and doing the work in your house, because that's basically what I do. And I know if I can do it at home, I think other people can do it at home. I think that's where fitness is going. It's going to be more virtual. People are going to get more YouTube general information. They're just going to do it at home. It's going to be too expensive to always have personal trainers for everybody. And I think people have to you know, they're going to be looking at screens. They're going to be watching a 10 minute class. They're going to be doing the workout right there at the house because it's going to be the safest place. 
you know, for a lot of the kids, you know, who don't have the environment outside their house to play tag, you know, that might be, that might have to be the, the choice. Otherwise, you're going to have to develop programs in, you know, lower uh, economic neighborhoods and have those programs daily for them and have them regulated by good, you know, teachers who can teach them. But, you know, obviously those are usually the first things cut or last things um, that are granted. So, I think the future of fitness is doing it at your house, doing it around your house, knowing, you know, maybe having an action plan in the community of what houses, what neighborhoods are the right houses or the neighborhoods that, you know, enjoy sports or sports or any type of physical activity where, you know, parents can like talk about that, communicate about that. But that's a very hard thing for people to start doing now is just going outside and talking to their neighbors, as you know, very intimidating. So I think it's going virtual. Yeah, and that and that's interesting, and, and I think to a certain extent, it kind of it kind of um, it kind of bothers me a little bit, you know, because I, I feel like when we were kids, you know, we had this this big social group that we would play these sports with, and as things become more virtual, I think sometimes we miss that connection, that people to people connection. How do you think we can we can kind of balance that? I think you do both as much as you can. I mean, obviously I teach, so I'm in a gymnasium and I'm in a social atmosphere. There's sport teams that go through our gym. There's administrators that go through our gym. My my teaching is very transparent. That's why I videotape a lot of it because it's just out there. You know, there's no hiding. There's no closing the door and saying, okay, this is what we're going to do today and not having any accountability. So I really like the fact that it is out in, in the open, very community friendly and developing those programs, I think what we can do is have uh, gym facilities, since there's so many of them. There's Pilates studios, yoga studios, there's TRX, you know, there's um, rowing, all these things. If they all had little initiatives for the community, for students, for kids with disabilities, for their community in general, if they gave more free programs or just try to get more people on board, I think they could be... Um, a production agent as far as getting people more out in the community because I think you need leaders in the field to show them and you know if the physical education teacher isn't doing it then the, the fitness facilities in that community have to come together and I think that's where I live I live in a really good community where all the fitness centers I mean there's so many things for people with disabilities here it's almost like too many things and they have like these schedules and then you go to another neighborhood and they don't have enough things so you have to almost find the community that gets you more active and otherwise you're going to be stuck inside which is obviously isn't a good thing for social people for social um and cognitive development so so you've you've mentioned it a couple times you're and i know you have this sort of a, of a passion for you know adapted physical education mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and how that passion got started for you? Sure. So um, my uncle has an intellectual disability and he's in his 60s now. Um, so I grew up with a uh, family member with a disability. And so I knew what it was like for that individual to be picked on, for that individual to be, you know, um, um, numbered against, you know, you know, um, I don't think he'll be able to do that. No, that's not that's not for him. And so I saw that my whole life you know, with my uncle and, you know, friends would even say negative things about him, you know, you know, when you're a kid, people just say the cruelest thing. So you know what people say about people with disabilities, you have that front and center view. And if you don't live with somebody with a disability, or have an uncle or an aunt or a cousin, you have absolutely no idea. So you have no perspective. And when you 
don't have perspective, you're more likely to judge negatively. And if you're likely to be negative of viewer toward people with disabilities, you're less likely to come in contact or communication with them, which means they're going to be more isolated, which, you know, obviously throughout history, they've been the most isolated to the point of, um, you know, obviously people were letting uh, individuals with disabilities pass away thousands of years ago. I mean, they would just leave them behind or they would just isolate them in a room. And, you know, obviously the past 50 years is a huge, huge boom for people with disabilities. And obviously we're gaining huge momentum. And I think that's where the shift is going. And I think with my background, I see what the nurturing process, um, how that unfolds for people with disabilities, if you have the right nurturers. So my grandparents were great nurturers. So I learned from them how to lead somebody with a disability, how to instruct somebody with a disability. And so I saw that firsthand because my grandparents were only a block away. So I would go over there every single day in the summer, use their pool, I'd go swimming with him, I'd be around him, I'd be around my grandparents. You know, and if you said anything negative about him, my grandparents were the first ones that like really shut you up. And they were very authoritative about that. And so I learned right off the bat that it was a serious, serious condition. And so when you realize what the seriousness of having a disability is and having to take care of a family member, you know, from the birth to death, you know, scenario, the, you know, and he's very independent. He's one of the only individuals who graduated that can drive a car from his class. And so he can drive to and from work. He's got a full-time job that he works at a nursing home doing dishes. And he, he enjoys his uh, social life. He does bingo. My grandfather actually just passed away this year, but he was a great supporter with my grandparent, uh, my grandfather who just passed away. He was going through a lot of um, physical disabilities uh, with his hip. He had hip surgery. So, you know, my uncle was there to take care of him, support him. So I know the worth of an individual, all individuals. And so I think that's where my passion experience uh, uh, helped me out the most as far as why I work with people with disabilities, because I know that they have more capabilities than most people. So I feel like that's, that's where I need to be. So tell us a little bit uh, about the work that you do now with uh, Adapted Physical Education. Sure. So I have about 40 students who work with about uh, 50 to 80 students with disabilities weekly. Um, the numbers were uh, a lot bigger. At one point, we were at a pinnacle you know, point where we were able to have about 100 students, college students, and 100 students with disabilities. And it was a great you know, ratio, and it was a great number. But we knew those numbers weren't sustainable. But we did get our numbers up to that point. So we've been, you know, we started with a smaller program about 30 years ago, Dr. Sue Combs, who started the uh, Adaptive Physical Activity Program. And it started out as just mentors, mentees, um, you know, working with people with disabilities once a week. And now it's up to, it was up to about six days a week. And now we're down to about three days a week. But we meet with about four to five different groups of people with disabilities. We partner them up with mentors or college students and the college students create adapted lesson plans for them and teach them physical activities using our standards, using my resources. And um, even if they're not a phys ed student, they go through some of the adapted lesson planning, which is which is harder for a non-PE student. And I'm mainly getting non-PE students, so I'm having to adapt my curriculum 
and actually, you know, go from teaching the IEP to teaching more of a um, personal training lesson plan because, um, you know, we can create IEPs, but we need more than that. We need to assess range of motion and those things can be generated through the IEPs, but a lot of these exercise science students are going to become physical therapists. So I allow them to do assessment of range of motion, occupational therapists, maybe it's just getting up and down off the ground, you know, so I'm having to create different types of curriculum for the different types of students. And I do have my general physical education student, and I really push them toward, you know, the cooperative games and the physical skills and literacy and that type of stuff. So I have to really pinpoint each student in a direction that's going to help them be successful teaching in the class with the lab component and then also creating a little bit of research in the field. So that's what I do for yeah. the college. And I know you, you publish a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the activities and lessons that you do in class as well. So I'll definitely put a link to, in the show notes to your YouTube channel because there's so many resources on that YouTube channel that, you know, I, I didn't know you had so many videos and so much stuff on there, but it's, it's great. It's a great resource, mm-hmm. um, especially for, for your, like, like I said, your adapted physical education lessons and, and um, things that you do in your class. Uh, another part of that, which which kind of caught my eye the other day, I think you tweeted out uh, like an hour long full body mobility exercise um, from your YouTube channel. Can mm-hmm. you talk about about that a little bit and um, and and sort of how that came about? Not only the YouTube channel, but but deciding to share some of these longer forms of uh, uh, exercise routines and mobility routines and things like that? Well, I, I generally like to create videos. I've been doing that my entire life. Um, my brothers create videos. We all edit videos. We love photography. And then I'm also just in generally trying to get information out there that's good information. So whatever the trend is in fitness, I like to try to get that trend and try to get it to the community quicker by just producing content immediately. Even if it's not my best work, I just I just promote it. You know, I just put it out there because I want to see people see me grow as well and see if that actually does work. But the mobility aspect is called functional range conditioning. It's uh, if you go to functional or if you go to um, uh, functionalanatomyseminars.com, there'll be a, um, a link where you can kind of figure out where the closest one is to you if there's a kin stretch instructor in your town. And so basically, functional range conditioning is a mobility practice and it takes you full your, uh, takes your joints through their full range of motion each day. And on top of that, it, it tells you and it assesses your range of motion every time you do perform those movements and then allows you to um, dictate what type of exercises you need to perform to improve the range of motion on the particular joint that's having you know, the least range of motion. So you're able to fix each joint independently and you're able to do more in your training, in your yoga, in your, uh, you know, hiking, in, in whatever you do, uh, jujitsu or, or sports, whatever it is that you do, you're going to do it better because you're going to realize that you can gain more range of motion through a mobility practice. Um, it's different than flexibility. So a lot of people don't understand the difference between flexibility and mobility. Flexibility is passive range of motion, where if you just, let's just say you, you're, um, you're on your back and you bring one knee to your chest and you hold it towards your chest and you just squeeze it, okay, right? That would be passive range of motion. Now, when you let go of that knee, 
that knee is going to want to go toward the ground, right? And so if you actively pull that knee up towards your chest, that would be active range of motion, okay? So a lot of us are producing flexible or flexibility, but we're not producing mobility. And so mobility is active range of motion. And if you take your body through its active ranges of motion, you understand how much limitations you actually have. But if you put things through their uh, passive range of motion, then you're not going to understand or you're not going to actually strengthen that joint and you're not going to actually gain real control. So mobility is control, neurological control, stimulation, and um, uh, strength in a joint range of motion. And so there's a big difference between flexibility and mobility. And I'm a certified yoga teacher as well and a certified functional range conditioning mobility specialist. So I do know the difference between those two and, and it's a big difference. And a lot of people get the mobility mixed up with yoga and they're like, oh, you're just doing yoga. And I'm like, no, you're actually not. It's called functional range conditioning. Like, oh, I don't know what that is. Well, basically, Dr. Andrea Spina, who you who if anyone wants to realize the importance of mobility, you're going to want to learn from Dr. Uh, Andrea Spina and he's accessible on YouTube. And he's got a lot of um, seminars that he teaches the kin stretch and the functional range conditioning. And he's really taken it down to an evolutionary, biological, uh, chemical, uh, physics, uh, conjunct, uh, scientific rationale of, of mobility. And so it's really cool to see scientific rationale implemented where when you look at, say, something like yoga, which is ancient, it never had the research or the science that we have now and the practice hasn't changed and you can find the science of yoga we're finding that passive range of motion isn't the most beneficial thing for you it's actually um, active range of motion and so it's a stem off of pnf stretching if you've heard of proprioceptive uh, neurofacilitation pnf stretching is a that actually you increase more flexibility. So this functional range conditioning is almost like an offshoot where you're taking PNF and you're taking it to one extra step and you're able to do that independently uh, and you're able to isolate each joint uh, through this mobility program. It's a very complex system, and um, but when you narrow it down, it's very basic and you just take their joints through their full circles or full range of motion. Yeah, it sounds very complex. <laughs> Yeah, but but again, you have a lot of these videos um, on your YouTube channel. In in any of those videos, do you kind of explain a little bit of the scientific rationale behind the um, the uh, functional um, the mobility strip, the, the mobility activities? Sure. Yeah. I mean, basically, if if you wake up in the morning, your joints have been doing nothing, right? You've been laying in your bed for eight hours and you've probably been on the couch from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. So, I mean, you've been really doing nothing for, you know, many, many hours. And so what your joints need to do is become, you know, become mobilized or you need to take them through their full range of motion. When you do that, you get the fluid in the joint and the mechanoreceptor stimulated to say, hey, I'm here. I own this range of motion. You know, this is, um, if, if you feel tightness, it's actually a neurological 
um, condition where it's telling you something. So tightness is telling you something. It's telling you that there's something wrong or something wrong. And you have to learn that, you know, if it's your hamstring, it's probably your knee. And so if your knee joint isn't able to bend fully or extend fully, then it's your knee. It's not your hamstring. So you have to look at your joints, not your muscles. And a lot of people think, well, I'm going to stretch my biceps. Well, you're just stretching your elbow. And you have to take things through their um, joints and um, take the joint through their full range of motion and independently you know, use the laws of training, law of specificity, law of adaptive progression, law of overload. And so you're using uh, the law of irradiation as well, which, which basically means that when you're taking a joint through its full range of motion, your whole body is irradiated and your whole body is recruiting muscle to t help that range of motion happen of itself. And so if I'm doing this range of motion, but I'm moving my whole entire body and I have no control of that shoulder, then I have no control of that shoulder. And that tells you something that tells you you need to fix that because you should have full control of your shoulder. And the fact that he takes it through an evolutionary aspect and a biological aspect saying we used to be creatures and crawlers and, and, and we used to just roam and, and we used to do all this stuff and our bodies and our existence and our brains are still adapted to that environment. But we wake up, we put socks on, we put shoes on, we sit in a school and we do that for, you know, our first 15 years of development and we all develop horrible, horrible uh, joint issues. And then we grow up and we have back pain or neck pain and we have headaches and we have depression because we're not moving. We're not moving our full range of motion daily, you know, with intent. And intent is huge because if you don't put any intent in anything, just like a, like a yoga practice, if you don't have intent in a mobility practice, you're not going to gain any benefit. So you really have to, um, develop a sense of awareness of, of each joint. And once you do that, or once you do that for someone, you're able to instruct them to increase range of motion in any aspect of their body, which is going to help their long-term, you know, gait or their function of walking, running, um, doing the lifts that they're going to do. If you take a hundred people and you say, all right, I'm going to do an Olympic lift, 99% of them aren't going to be able to get their um, shoulder in the right angle. So why are coaches teaching that? And so there's a paradigm shift of culture where we have to assess the full range of motion before we take people through movements, which can overload that range of motion if they're not properly primed for that position. So we're trying to mitigate injury. And so that's the point of the full range of motion, the mobility, and it's trying to own that range of motion. So I want to be able to own this range of motion in internal rotation and in shoulder flexion. I want to own that. So I need to put myself in that position using the law of specificity, using the law of adaptations, progressive overload. And so you're basically taking the laws and all the training methods we've been taught and he's just taken it in a very, very complex and uh, put it in a simple system for people to understand. So he's done the groundwork and now we're the train moving forward. And so you'll see guys like Hunter Fitness on Instagram and these guys that have been doing it for five, six years and they they can do anything. They're working with the Circus Dulay. They're working with the Lakers. They're working with, um, you know, MLB, NBA, uh, NHL now. And so I really think there's a culture shift of what mitigating injury is going to be in the future. And I think they're going to be definitely on the frontier of that. So do you think, um, do you see this becoming more 
available to students in the school system as well like even before not only before they do sports should they go through some sort of like a, a mobility assessment to see you know how, how far how far they should be you know pushing their body in any given activity but could you see this also being a part of the physical education curriculum yeah and i've implemented it in the curriculum slightly and i've kind of tested it out this year and it's definitely harder for people to pick up um, you can relate it to yoga um, people can be teaching it like a yoga class and so that's why i can get, kind of get mixed up as yoga but um Right now, since it's you know only 10 years in and you have to have really good credentials to be able to teach it, I don't see phys ed teachers getting the chance or opportunity unless they take one of these certification courses or they just watch my content. I mean, just like most phys ed teachers do, we can't afford the certifications. We don't go to the, uh, you know, we don't go to the professional development to get these certifications because we're only limited to certain, you know, state conventions, right? So we don't, we miss out on the yoga certifications. We miss out on the mobility certifications. So a lot of phys ed teachers have to watch these on YouTube. And I think that's the best way for phys ed teachers really to learn. And even when I wasn't certified as a yoga teacher, I was teaching yoga because I was a phys ed teacher and I needed to learn yoga. And, and so it's just like anything, you just have to learn it. You have to you know, say, I'm going to learn this just like I'm going to learn anything else as a phys ed teacher and then try to implement it. And really, once they learn what it's doing for their students and what it's doing for themselves, they'll see it as a sustainable long term, um, very beneficial, and it's very anatomically structured. So it teaches you the anatomy and physiology when you're teaching it. It can be a it can be a, a kindergarten lesson. It could be a uh, structured curriculum in an anatomy and physiology class. So it's very organized to be fully inclusive for any type of curriculum that's why i like about it the most so um you mentioned you know waking up in the morning and you know you have those stiff joints and mm -hmm. you've been laying in bed for eight hours or however long hopefully it's at least eight hours right, right. um but uh is this something that you can also kind of self-assess and would you recommend that waking up in the morning self-assessing your your mobility and then doing what you can to to kind of help uh, facilitate or increase your range of motion for the day is that a good way to like sort of start your day yeah if you go to youtube and go morning mobility if you go to morning mobility cars routine or morning cars routine you'll find like ian marco you'll find myself on youtube and it will just teach you the full mobility morning routine and what you do is it takes about 40 minutes to learn it at first and then you do it the second time it's about 30 minutes and then it's about 20 minutes and then you can get it down to a condensed 10 minutes and basically it's just like a body check so if i was to start performing uh the mobility i would just stand up start with my neck circle start then go to my thoracic spine then go to my scapula, then go to my wrist, then go to my shoulder, then go to my elbow, you know, and I'm basically just taking each joint through its full range of motion. And I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't know I had a wrist issue until I checked it today. Now I'm going to check it tomorrow morning. Do I still have that issue? Okay. Now, if I have an issue, should I fix that issue or should I go and do a push press over my head? You know, no, I'm going to do the push press over my head. My wrist is injured. I should have listened to my assessment. So basically you're assessing yourself each morning and you're saying, I can do this and I can't do that today. 
And that way, when you go to your training, when you go to school, whenever you're going to do something, you know, okay, I got a left shoulder issue. Maybe I should take some more of those shoulder rotations and maybe I should do like 30 that day. You know, oh, the next day, oh, it doesn't feel as bad because I did my morning assessment. And so basically each joint full circle with intent, you'll find your range and then you'll be able to assess that range. Now that's a very self-assessed, that's a very self-assessed um, way to do it. And there's forms and you can get the functional range assessment certification. It's only 800 bucks and the functional range conditioning is only 800 bucks. And I think that's why it's generally a good value because a lot of the certifications like a yoga certification would be 2,500 bucks. So I think it would be a good idea for phys ed teachers to take a weekend, go to one of those seminars, get, uh, get the certification. I think it would be definitely beneficial for them and get the functional range assessment um, and basically it's just a box that says shoulder and then, okay, how does that shoulder feel? How big was that shoulder circle? You can videotape your shoulder circles. So you can say, oh, I can see that on this video when I first did it, I had no control right here, or I couldn't even get in this range. Or when I did this, my whole chest opened up. Now I want to try to do it without opening up my chest. Oh, I can't do it as far when I do it restricted. So it's a very restricted, isolated, joint by joint you know, assessment. And I think that's why what makes it so valuable and sustainable for everybody. You, you know, if you keep up with that, you're basically like saving the work that you're doing. It's basically like, uh, you know, you're just saving your work and then you're good to go. Now, if you don't do that, you're not going to maintain the longevity of your joints. It's like joint flossing. It's almost like you're keeping up with your hygiene of your joints. And that's how I, that's what I talk to students about. I go, this is basically like joint hygiene. Do you want to have cavities? No. Well, do you want to have, you know, issues with your shoulders or hips or something like that when you get older, then you need to do this daily so that you can, um, you know, develop a pattern. So that, so that would be the assessment, right? So you do the assessment daily. And, and then from that, like you said, you, 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 you kind of um, self-assess and see what range of motion you have, what, where you, what you can do, what you can't do for that day, what you might have to rest uh, as opposed to you know, actively work. Um, from there, you also have exercises that you can do to help sort of uh, um, maintain or increase that range of mobility, right? All right, so yeah, so the daily mobility program is for, just for maintenance. Then you have what is called PALS and RALS, which are progressive angular isometric loads. And regressive, yeah. That one again. <laughs> so it's PALS, P-A-I-L-S, and we just say RALS, R-A-I-L-S. And we call those PALS and RALS. PALS and RALS, okay. Mm-hmm. And so PALS and RALS, basically progressive angular isometric load. You put the, the joint in its progressive angular isometric load basically and you're putting it into an angle and then you're producing an isometric contraction in that angle and so that's you have you seen pnf stretching no i haven't okay so basically um you know when you have a trainer pushing someone's leg and they say all right now push back uh, yeah so you know how that angle is would be progressive like you're, you're in a progressive angle when you're doing that force. So basically when you're in that 90 degree and someone's pushing your leg back, that would be the progressive angle. So when he's producing that force, he's contracting the tissue that's being stretched. Mm 
Okay, and when you're producing force in that tissue that's being stretched in that angle, you're able to increase the end range of strength in that particular joint. After that process, you go to rails. That's when you go deeper into your stretch the other way in the regressive angular isometric load. So trying to shorten the angle or trying to increase the distance of the stretch. So basically, if the guy was pushing the guy's leg back, he'd want to go pals, he'd push into the guy's hands, rails, he would try to lift away from the guy's hands deeper into the stretch. And so then he would end up here at rails, you'd begin the passive stretch here, okay? All right, you're passively stretching for about two minutes, that's the first part, and then pals, you start pushing into the trainer, and then rails, you try to lift away from the trainer. You see it, and right. see that hamstring just getting straighter and straighter? And so that's basically the process, pals and rails. And then they have end range rotational training, they have essential neural grooving, and it gets really, really scientific. And so it, it really, it, and it matters, because you have to be able to talk to trainers and therapists in the same language. And a lot of people will say the wrong terminology, and that's what gets people mixed up. So when you say tight, I don't know what you mean by tight. You know what I mean? What is the neurological condition? Can you produce a progressive force here? Can you produce a regressive force here? And so basically, in the deep angles, you're strengthening your end ranges. And so when your leg is back and the trainer's pushing your leg back, you're trying to produce force in that end range. And so that's going to help you expand space in your hip flexion. So for that particular stretch. And then you can do that in all different stretches. So for example, if I'm doing a lateral neck, um, um, here's the tissue that's being stretched right here. See this right here? Yeah. Okay, so I would passively stretch here for about two minutes. And then my pals effort, see this angle right here? Uh -huh. This is the progressive angle. See how it's big? And see how this angle right here is small? Yeah. So that's why this is called PALS and this is called RALS. So this is the progressive angle, this is the regressive angle. And all your joints have progressive and regressive angles. So if I had a closing angle joint pain right here when I did a lateral flexion of my neck, I would know that I would need to go like this, stretch, produce force from here my PALS, don't let it move, isometric contraction, and then RALS, go deeper into the stretch. Now, I wouldn't want to do that if I specifically didn't need that. So it depends on the person and their, and their assessment. So, so, and then in that case, um, you could do some of these without like a trainer as well, right? So once you do your assessment and you realize where those, uh, uh, where, what joints you would need to work, you could do some of those activities right um, on your own as well right for sure and so once you figure out it's right it's your right hip flexion or it's right hip external rotation or right hip internal rotation or supination of the right wrist i mean it goes down to your specific anatomy and then it takes that anatomy and says all right you need to do three rounds of pals and rails three rounds of essential neural grooving and a proper trainer and the mobility specialist will be able to tell you exactly so if you're doing it on your own, you'd be able to self-diagnose, and then you would just go, all right, I got a hip flexion. I'm going to find hip flexion, pails and rails on YouTube, 
and it'll come right up and you'll probably get one or two per people that have already posted it and so people are helping people fix their bodies using these exercises wow that's really interesting mm -hmm. and, and i could see how that could get very very complex really quickly mm -hmm. so it would require like a uh, a physical education teacher, if he's going to do some of these things to, to, or even teach, I could see maybe like in a high school, teach his high school students to sort of go through one of these self-assessments. Do you, do you see something like that happening uh, maybe in physical education class if somebody is certified and is able to explain this in a way that uh, a middle school or high school student would be able to understand? High school students for sure would understand this. Middle schools would be getting there and I think yeah and I think you could be going through it you know as low as kindergarten I mean it's very 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 simple when it comes down to it and then it can be as complex as you want to make it to a collegiate curriculum so I think it I think it really is for all learners um, and it's beneficial you know, for all people trick, as well the trick would just be to be able to communicate that and articulate it to their level right yeah and it just depends on the teacher and their intent you know is their intent to you know, to increase students' mobility education. And if there isn't intent, then it won't really produce any effect. So the, the, it comes with intent. You know, what's your intent here? Because a lot of teachers will teach flexibility or yoga, but they don't know why flexibility or yoga essentially is important. And so they just teach it because it's part of a curriculum. So it really does take... What's that? I was just going to say, I think a lot of that, that intent is because, you know, we learn that flexibility... Uh, prevents injuries, right? In right. The long run. But this actually would help prevent in injuries at a, at a higher level, right? So this is something that maybe could also be added into that flexibility aspect. Right. So from the slides of basically flexibility is the capable of being bent, usually without breaking, susceptible to modification or adaptation, the ability to passively achieve a range of motion. So basically it's a range of motion that which a person has no control, where mobility is the capable of moving or, or ability to move and the ability to move physically. And so basically, he's trying to change mobility, the definition to functional mobility, which is the ability to actively achieve a range of motion, flexibility, strength and control. Training is an attempt to capture passive range of motion and make them active or usable ranges of motion. And so basically turning on that tissue. And so, for example, when I work with somebody with Down syndrome who is over flexible, they don't typically have control of that flexibility and they're at more risk of a injury. And so a lot of people are like, oh, congratulations, you're very flexible. Let's clap it up for the person that's the most flexible. But that's not always going to be good in the long term. You can get injured in those um end ranges if you don't have control and strengthen those end ranges so we're trying to control and strengthen the end ranges with mobility and i think it's a new term it's you know even when i look through my manuals i see a paragraph on mobility and so it's definitely going to be something that will be a paradigm shift when it comes to mitigating injury in the future for sure so i think it's it's good for all populations yeah, and I, and I see that more and more as, you know, kind of I get older myself and I still try to do some of the things that I did when I was younger. Um, I, I did jiu-jitsu for a long time and uh, here in Cal, there's a group that does jiu-jitsu and I notice now that I, I do it and the next day I'm so sore and the next, you know, couple days I'm just, uh, I don't recover as quickly as possible. And then what I tend to do is I tend to just avoid that instead of, 
instead of you know doing an, a self-assessment and seeing where I need to uh, become a little bit more, uh, 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 have more mobility in my joints, right? Same thing when I'm playing basketball. I, I play basketball every now and then here in the in the community, and and I see myself uh, um, again, kind of hurting in certain areas and then just avoiding it, just avoiding it altogether instead of actually trying to help my body out and help myself recover a little bit better. Yeah. The cool thing is if you start with the background that you have now and do the whole mobility program and videotape yourself, do it daily for three months and look at the video in three months, you'll be amazed of how much control you have in three months. And then you'll want to build on that control and then you'll get kind of that specificity request from your brain saying, yeah, every time you rotate that shoulder, you do feel something. And so now I need you to fix that. Otherwise, it's going to get worse and worse over time. So you have to slowly and progressively adapt. And so I think I think it'd, it'd be a cool thing for you to try that, you know. And, it, and obviously, it's just like anything. It's just trying to keep up with it and trying to do it. And you have to try to be committed. And that's that's obviously the hardest part. And so... You know, try maybe one at a time, or try the whole thing, and then see see what happens. Yeah, and I definitely am, and and you make it a lot easier with some of the videos that you have up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll definitely be hitting you up in the future, uh, just to 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 kind of check in and see, you know, what, what's going on. But with some of the videos you have online that you've already published and posted, like it takes you through each step, you know, step by step, very specifically so that anybody could really do it just by watching some of your videos. Right, right. And and I think that's how people are learning uh, more generally because, you know, it's access. It's access to information and it's yeah. immediate, you know. And if somebody comments and says, hey, you know, why don't you do a video on this? I'll make a video on that. So I'm very receptive to the community who comments and I don't think people I think people take that for granted right now but that's probably a good thing because otherwise I'd just be creating videos left and right and I'll get to a point where I have to choose either research or videos and I'll have to choose research but when I am in a video content making mode I really do like to communicate with my audience and if they're like hey you know could you do something specifically for the elbow or the with the hand or the shoulder? I'm like, okay, yeah. Or I'll send you a link on that comment. So I think it's just giving people information quicker instead of waiting and saying, oh, you know, I'll get to that course or I'll get, you know, go to the YouTube, start, you know, Googling this stuff and YouTubing, be a good researcher. A lot of times as well is, is spent doing something that's not good for your health. So why not, you know, especially for our phys ed community to kind of increase their own mobility and just know the difference between mobility and flexibility because if students ask you that's something that you should be able to tell them you know just like all the locomotor skills but um you know that's another thing too yeah yeah and and so you mentioned earlier about um about using cooperative learning in your class and that's mm-hmm. something that uh that I started doing a while back after reading uh, Ash Casey's book on cooperative learning and I actually got to see him at the uh, PE Institute. He presented on cooperative learning, and it was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. It's definitely something that I need to incorporate in my class. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you use cooperative learning in your class and, and I guess, uh, the importance of how that would work in a phys ed class? Sure. And I would say that cooperative learning is just as competitive and challenging as competitive learning. And I say that because people root each other on. People are lifting each other up to a point where, you know, it's not about 
who beats who. It's about you know doing things as a group. And I think it's really important to have games like cooperative games. Like I always teach cooperative games because I know students are just so used to competitive games when they're doing pickup with their friends or when they're when when their phys ed teacher rolls out the ball and does competition. So I always try to do, include co cooperative games, whether that's freeze dance, which is my favorite one, and that's dancing with some music, freezing it, having everyone freeze, and then we pick a new dancer, and then that dancer comes up and leads the class, and then they pick a new frozen dancer. If they don't want to dance, they can do something like a movement, they can do a fitness. So, you know, sometimes you'll get one or two students that don't want to do the cooperative game or whatever, but most people always have fun. Uh, parachutes usually always typically involved. Um, we do have some sharks and minnows types of games, but there's never games where you really feel like you're excluded or you're out or, you know, we're playing kickball or I don't really do a lot of relays that much, you know, and I, I don't like to do high intense stressful games inside of a space where people can get really worked up because it's an environment that, you know, you just you just open these doors to a gym to people and all of a sudden you can either create chaos or you can create, you know, cooperative challenges for everybody and everybody kind of works together and does fun things and has a good time because I've seen I've seen the detriments of co competition and I've seen what happens when you you're like, "All right, you versus you, I want you to kick that ball through the goal and I want you to try to stop that ball." And you're and you're you're aiming the ball at the kid and and he's not really that, you know, competent as a goalie and you're having him play goalie which you never taught him how to, you know, even be goalie. And so I really just like to take it by the skill approach, individual space approach. Everyone gets a piece of equipment. Everyone's doing something at the same time. Limit wait time, you know, and do things together like yoga. Do things together like a nutrition game. Do things together um, that just kind of let the students teach the class. And I do that all the time. You know, I teach yoga and they know poses, even if they just create the pose. They go up there, they teach us a pose. Everyone gets a chance to teach. I really try to give the class back to the the um, the student, for sure. You know, what's great about cooperative learning, I think, too, is that it does hold everybody accountable. So you don't have necessarily, like, uh, um, that student kind of sitting back and letting other people uh, uh, kind of be the stars of the show, right, so to speak. It, everybody, everybody has a contribution. Uh, to the class and to the activity, and and uh, you know, not too long ago, I did a, uh, a a a I went to a workshop about positive discipline, and they talked a lot about uh, the work of Joseph Adler, Alfred Adler. I'm sorry, and and his big thing is about belonging and significance. And I think in a in a in a setting, a physical education setting that has you know some of these cooperative learning aspects to it, the kids in there feel like they have some significance to the learning. And they are contributing to everybody's learning. And that's why I think that's so important to kind of start viewing our educational spaces as cooperative spaces where kids can learn from each other. For sure. And I like breaking down things into stations and having you know, resistance training and weight training yeah. and bringing the gym to the gym, you know, as so to speak. And, and allowing everyone, like you said, kind of like be a part of the show and, and show up and, and take part in the learning. And so, you know, that's definitely my approach because you only have one hour and usually if it is with them, it's once a week. And so 
do you really do you really want to see your students kind of go against each other in a way that uh, ignites sometimes social injustice and i know a lot of people are coming back at that like oh no dodgeball is fine and i played dodgeball as a student and i remember playing hockey and i remember it was just the athletic people it was just the people that played sports and everyone else got picked on and i know i know it firsthand because i saw it in 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 high school and i and i know what it's like when teachers allow that to happen so i really think um there should be that culture change in phys ed just because you're only with them once once a week if 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 you know half a semester so yeah and it's interesting that the dodgeball thing keeps coming up especially online sometimes i'm in these forums where they start talking about dodgeball and it's like oh i wish we could move on from this right um, but the thing that people always come back to is that, well, my kids love it. My kids love it. They always yeah. ask for it. They love it. I, and yeah, I love it. might be this, this appearance of the kids loving it, right? But And I always say, like, my daughter loves ice cream. She loves ice cream. But right. I'm not going to let her eat ice cream all the time. Right. And so we have to have more to the activities than the kids just love it. Because there might be this uh, this idea of enjoyment from the activity, but at the same time, they might be getting, because I know that article just came out and you kind of referred to it about the oppressive nature of some of these games. So there might be this idea of enjoyment, but what's coming out of that activity might be, might also be some of these uh, 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 more oppressive sort of qualities of the game kind of manifesting themselves through the activity. Yeah. And that's something that, that people need to, I think, look at a little bit more and say let's go a little bit deeper than just the outward idea of enjoyment or fun that they might be having and see what teaching is actually going on i think you have to look at a game like that and say what would dodgeball's complete opposite look like think of that and then why don't you create a lesson plan on that how creative are you that if you can take dodgeball and everything that it stands for and create a lesson that is the opposite of that, what would that lesson look like? And you'd be like, oh, wow, well, people would be giving things to each other, like, I don't know, medicine balls, and they would be getting stronger together, and they're creating a a group together, and they have to put all the medicine balls over here and all the weights over here, and they're building a fortress, and they're working together. They're a class, and they're all getting strong, and they're they're saying the same things you would as during dodgeball, but guess what? The teacher doesn't have the either the competence to teach that or the confidence to teach that and so they rely on a roll out the ball method and a very traditional approach uh method that is you know stigmatized now and it's it's obvious why it's 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 not a good thing in schools yeah and and i think and I think just to just to kind of close this uh, loop about dodgeball, because I do kind of get uh, a little, <laughs> a little tired of, of the of the you know the discussion around around some of these like banned games, so to speak. Um, but but I, I I think you're right. I think we can be more creative with some of the activities that we do, and especially and I and I hate to even like ban an activity or ban a game because I think everything has its time and its place, not necessarily in physical education class, but it's not a bad game in its in it, in and of itself, but there are qualities that we could eliminate that would make it a little bit more inclusive, that would make it a little bit more cooperative, and that would teach lessons, lifelong lessons to our students that would be uh, a little bit more beneficial to them. Yeah, I, I created a game called uh, Cornfield, and basically you set up these big mats and everyone hides behind them in the crouch position and you try to knock over the other team's 
mat and then you when the, your thing gets knocked down you go to a section and do a type of workout and then you go back in and create your base and so you're able to throw the ball and you're able to knock things down so i did yeah. create some type of cooperative game through that but um I think, yeah, like, I mean, if you structure it good, you, you, all right, let's do some arm rotations before we throw the ball. Let's do some target practice. Uh, let's put this in a setting where everyone signs a consent form. Let's put this in a setting where um, it's not in the physical education setting, like you said, and, and if this is an after-school thing and you want to have a league, that's totally fine. Everyone signs consent. Parents are cool with it. That's fine with me, too. But in a cooperative, inclusive setting like a physical education classroom should, should be, you should really be able to meet all the demands and that's not meeting everyone's demands. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we're coming up to the end of the hour. Mm -hmm. So um, I do want to ask you about um, how people can get a hold of you. And also I want you to, to let us know about, um, I think you also have a podcast out where you sure. talk about some of the things that we talked about today. 